So chapter 34, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Um, this is a difficult portion of scripture and a little, you know, R-rated, but, um, or PG-13 at least, so you've been warned. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. The women of the land is a phrase for the Canaanite ladies. So Dinah is maybe doing something bad here. Some people say yes, some people say no, other people say we don't know. But curiosity is going to kill the kitten, so to speak, here in a second. Verse 2, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, could also be translated take her, he takes her, and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Okay, so just a heads up here. I have uh, no ambition this evening to justify anything here or to, um, or to try to defend God and why he would place this in the Bible. Um, it's kind of ambiguous, though. The story is a little ambiguous. Hebrew is an ambiguous language. So one thing we know is we can trust God and this is for our good, but it is an ambiguous and touchy story. It really is. She's out um, maybe doing something wrong with the women of the land, the Canaanite women. You know, she's a single lady out on the town. You know, is she looking for trouble? I, I'm not sure, but it seems that way. And the prince of the land um, seizes her in another passage of Scripture. Well, he seizes her and he lays with her, humiliates her. And then it goes on to say he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So how do we um, how do we harmonize those two things? I don't know. Okay, (laughs) but but um, but that's what it says. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. All right. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. True. Um, down to verse 8. Is everyone tracking with the story so far? All right, she goes out to Canaanite land. Um, it seems like she was raped, um, but the guy loves her, and he wants to marry her. And um, he goes back, the guy's father goes to Jacob to pay the bride price, to, to make restitution so that his son can marry her. But the sons especially the two sons of Leah, um, whose names were not given just yet, are uh, indignant and angry about this. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. 
Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. So there's the bride price, and then there's the gift, which may be the restitution. And I will give whatever you say to me. I will do whatever it takes to make this right. And uh, he loves her, and um, let's, uh, let's join forces. Let's be allies. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. That's what the son is saying. So now remember last time we talked about the antithesis between Esau and Jacob. What do we have? We have a similar problem here, don't we? Um, can they just join forces with them, ally with them, covenant with them, marry their daughters to them? Are Christians allowed to marry non-Christians? No, absolutely not. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Right. <clears throat> so it goes on in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Is that a true statement? Yes, that's a true statement. You can't, the circumcised Christians can't marry the uncircumcised Canaanites. And so they bring up that theological truth. You ever met a, a Christian who knows his theology and maybe uses it um, for the wrong reasons? Well, you're about to meet two of them right here. All right. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and we will be gone. Now, of course, I have a particular hermeneutic and I have come to certain conclusions about the um, significance of circumcision and what it means in the Old Testament. And what is happening here, in my opinion, is that this town is repentant and they are becoming Christians. They want to become Christians. They want to join the church. Circumcision was not a sign of becoming an Israelite um, in becoming a part of the nation. It was a sign of becoming a part of the ecclesiastical aspect of the nation, of having access to the temple, participating in the Passover, all of those things. I'll, sh I'll show you more of those things in a little bit. So I do believe that this is uh, one of the earliest incidences of a, of a family or a tribe. It would be something like we would think of as a tribe or a clan being converted. All right. Of course, it doesn't come about by um, ideal circumstances, but they say we're ready to be under the law. We're ready to come into your community to submit ourselves even to, to this uh, gruesome act. Circumcision was very gruesome. Stone knife or flint knife, um, very painful, very difficult. You know, this takes faith to, uh, to subject themselves to this, but this is what they want. They want to be in covenant with Israel. Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. And look what the Bible says about the rapist, right? If he is a rapist or whatever he is. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So I told you it's ambiguous. We're not exactly sure the incident here. But one thing we can be sure of is that they can't marry off and join forces with these Canaanites unless they convert, unless they convert, unless they're circumcised, right? 
And uh, just to let you know the rest of the story, because I'm not going to read the entire chapter, <coughs> um, they all get circumcised. Right? Now, what is circumcision a symbol of? You can read this in several portions of Scripture, but it's a, it's a symbol of heart circumcision, right? Regeneration. It is a sign that the old man is being cut off and that you are being made new by the blood sacrifice of Christ. It is uh, sort of out with the old, in with the new. It's a washing. It's a, uh, it's a, a cleansing. It's a, um, a, a cleaning of defilement. That's what circumcision is, and this is not a class on circumcision, but you can take my word for it for now. Um, but it's a sign of the old man, out with the old man, right? Mankind cannot save himself, you know. Um, you need to be, you need a blood sacrifice. You need the Holy Spirit to cleanse you and to wash you. And so when they entered into Canaan land, the Canaanites, of course, were defiled. They were pagans. <clears throat> and if they were going to be converted, if they were going to be cleansed, what did they need? They had to be circumcised, they, and which is a sign and, a, and a, a testimony to the fact that they need the Holy Spirit, like all of us do. Right? So what is one way a Canaanite could be cleansed and no longer be unclean outside of the covenant, but clean and brought into the covenant and given access and allowed to covenant and be grafted into the covenant people? He'd have to be circumcised all the men now uh, we know from other portions of scripture that women were not circumcised they were baptized so and this was done at the same time in fact when you were circumcised as an adult you were also baptized if you were uh, circumcised as a child and you apostatized probably went prodigal touched dead animal did some other things and you wanted to come back well you can't be circumcised twice you would be baptized so circumcision and baptism are always joined together, although it's oftentimes translated washed or other things like that or sprinkled. Uh, you, in order to get the baptizo, you have to read the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to get the baptizo and to see the connection between that and circumcision, which is all over the entire Old Testament. So for them to come in to be cleansed, they have to be circumcised. Rahab, when she comes in, you know Rahab, the Canaanite, she obviously is not circumcised but she is baptized she's ceremonially washed it's a symbol of washing you're clean now you have access right you're a part of the people you can marry into the covenant people right you can partake in the passover etc so they all do this and then you know what happens do y'all know the story the two guys sneak over there and kill everyone in the town um what a tragic story though right now, you might think, how in the world do two men kill every, all the men in the town? Well, um, apparently, it was a s significant procedure, and it incapacitated you. No painkillers, um, no hospitals, no antibiotics. Big deal, right? Um, and so they go over there, and they kill all of them, and uh, Jacob curses his sons. And this is beginning the, the story of the book of Genesis, where the blessing goes from the sons of, of uh, Leah to the sons of uh, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. And the story of Joseph will take on from here. So this is part of that blessing being transferred to Joseph and Benjamin. And uh, I think it's the next chapter. Another one of Leah's sons is going to do something bad, sleep with his father's concubine or something, Reuben. And so he loses the blessing too. So this is all part of this story of the, 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 the journey of the seed, the blessings of the covenant, you know, the believers and the non-believers conversion of the nations it's all of this and um 
So there's a ton here. That's why I think this is such a fascinating passage. It's just a lot, that, a lot of things that we don't talk about as modern-day pop evangelical Christians. We don't talk about these things, obviously. So, but let me read you a few verses and, and see how it lands with you. It's uh, Deuteronomy 22, verse 28. Um, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, everyone know what betrothed means? Engaged with money and covenants exchange and oaths and vows and legal actions on the ready. If a, if a, a man, basically what we would think, you know, basically not consummated yet, but married. Um, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and obviously not married and seizes her and lies with her and they are found. Okay, it's an interesting switch there. And they are found. So I'm not exactly sure what is going on here, but we have some idea. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman. You know, we understand head of the household and authority. But give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all of his days. Right? So if you fornicate, um, then you are going to pay the dowry. Now, this is not buying the, the lady. Um, this is money. This is kind of what we're symbolizing with giving someone a very expensive diamond ring. It's like if I divorce you, you can always cash that bad boy in, right? It, it's part of what we have when we, the, uh, the government legally enforces covenant ma- um, vows and marriage vows so that if you divorce your wife and leave her, she gets half your stuff. It's a way to protect the person who is more vulnerable. And so the dowry in the Old Testament was given as an insurance policy, as a life insurance policy, what we would think of as social security, okay? But it was social security from the household, not from the the government using other people's money. Make sense? And so if you did this, you had to pay that dowry. There was also laws about restitution, uh, criminal charges, et cetera, et cetera. Laws about whether or not it happened in town or out of town, whether or not she protested or didn't protest. It gets complicated. But one thing you can know is that God is just, right? And you can trust his laws, even if we don't exactly understand all the dimensions here. This is a very long time ago, right? And, it's, and the Hebrew is ambiguous. It's a little ambiguous. Now listen to another one right here. Exodus twenty-two sixteen. If a man seduces a virgin, now that's a different word, but you can see it there, who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. All right? Now what if she is betrothed? What is the penalty? Execution. That's right. What if she's married? What's the penalty? Yes, you can't, you can't sin against the seed. You can't, um, you can't commit treason against the household. It's a, a criminal offense, and that's how it was. Not all adultery ended up in execution, just that one type, because it's a sin against the seed, against the messianic promises, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it goes on, it says, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, see, the father's still the authority. That's why you ask your dad um, if you want to date someone or get married. Shira's not here. You know, she knows that already. But he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So you see all these laws, all of these laws are relevant in this story, in this interesting story. Exodus twelve forty eight. here's another one. If a stranger shall jo- sojourn with you, so what's a stranger? Stranger of the covenant, a foreigner, an alien. If they sojourn with you, so they're, you know, they're going with you, and you, and, and, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, Right? They want to keep the Passover, right? 
What does that mean for us? What would be an equivalent? They want to be a part of our covenant community. They want to covenant with the church and partake in the Lord's Supper, have their children baptized or be baptized, all of those things. Um, if they would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. So if you want to be a part of the church, you want to take in the Passover, the ritual meal, remembering the redemption out of Egypt, you've got to be circumcised. Then, he, then this sojourner, this foreigner, may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. You see what I mean? It's like he, now he, it's like he was born here. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of the Passover. All right, it's a ritual meal. It's a gospel meal. So you can see in this story, they, they pay the bride price. They give the uh, gift, probably restitution or an overabundance of, of, you know, apologies or whatnot. The guy, it says they love her. The Bible even says, God says he's the most honorable of all of them, right? She, it is hard to live in Canaan land, especially if you're outside the covering of your dad and you're wandering off in the fields by yourself and you go out there with all the perverts. It's a rough world out there, right? Um, it's like an apartment complex near UL, you know, something like that. It's a rough world. It's a rough world out there for a single lady. So, you know, who's to be blamed here? Some commentators say Jacob is a passive dad, probably. Some people say um, uh, Dinah, you know, was asking for it. Some people say that the two brothers are at fault. And, uh, and I say it's probably a little bit of everybody here. It's a terrible story. But one thing we know for certain is that when they were circumcised, they were in. And Jacob's two sons went and slaughtered all of them. That's murder. You see, if, if you are cleansed by circumcision, then you cannot be cleansed by holy war. That's the two ways. Right? When Jesus comes to conquer the nations, what's the two ways he conquers his enemies? It's those two. Holy Spirit cleansing or judgment. Water or fire. Right? Spirit or fire. Those are the two options. Well, they, they come into the church and then they're like sinners. Kill all of them. All right. So they're definitely bad. They're definitely wrong. Now, they, they repent, in my opinion. They repent later in the book. You'll see. But um, um, I think they'll be in heaven. But this was a terrible mistake. Okay? Now, here's where it gets a little fun. <clears throat> Who here can tell me other stories in the Bible that this sounds a lot like? People being forgiven of a terrible sin, repenting, making, making restitution, um, joining the church, and then the Christians are mad about it and, try, and kill them all and try to kill them. I wish they wouldn't be saved, huh? Oh, sure, yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, the Jews certainly were not happy about these Gentile dogs receiving the Holy Spirit like the rest of them. No, not them, right? Peter needed a, a vision just to be convinced that this was even possible. That's a great example. Yeah, that's, a, that's probably the, the primary example of this. this is, that's probably where all this is headed, is, is the Jews being receptive to the dogs Coming in. Okay, that's, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that one. Joab, Joab killed Abner when Abner was repentant, and David was very mad about that and cursed Joab for being so un, ungracious. And let, he, Abner wanted to join the Messiah's team. He wanted to join David, and 
And uh, Joab was too angry and he, he, because he had killed one of his sons in war a long time ago, even though his son was asking for it and, uh, and wouldn't, wouldn't heed the warnings. And he makes vengeance on him and, and David curses Joab's family. Exact same story. Exact same story. That's a good pull right there. Right. You must be doing the Bible reading challenge. <laughs> That's a good pull. What else? Jonah. This is the Jonah story, too, isn't it? It's like I, when God didn't burn them with fire and destroy their whole city with an atom bomb from heaven, he's like, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> like, I hate when these, ah. Uh, <laughs> that's why I didn't want to go preach repentance, because I knew you would forgive them. Right? <laughs> this is, a, who else? A couple of the disciples. Remember the story with the disciples? <clears throat> James and John. Samaritans are following Jesus. Hey, look at those sinners. You want us to pray fire from heaven on them? <laughs> and Jesus says, you don't know what sort of spirit you are of. You know, sin is tricky. Sin is tricky. You know, sin is sneaky, sneaky. A lot of stuff that seems like self-righteousness or seems like righteousness really is actually a sin, right? Um, Jordan and I were talking earlier this week about, you know, the, the drunkenness of Noah. Remember that story? Look up any sermon on it. Read any commentary. They're like, oh, Noah's drunk. He's drunk. He's a drunkard. And, and he's so bad. The Bible never says he does anything bad. It never said it. In, the Hebrew is not even that clear. Is he drunk? Is he buzzing? Is he, is he knocked out because he had just had to do surgery on his big toe? I don't know. Like, it's not that clear. Okay? What actually happens is God curses Ham and Canaan. So uh, none of the commentators are like, what the heck did Canaan do? They're all like, Moses, he, you know, he wasn't. He should have abstained. Right. That's the true path of salvation. Abstinence from everything. No, they bust on 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 Noah and they miss the sin because the sin of of Ham and Canaan is a sin that's not on Americans radar. It's the sin of revolution against authority. It's a sin of not being loyal covenantally to your superiors. That's the sin. It's the sin of Satan, the sin of Adam, it's the sin of Ham, it's the sin of Absalom, it's the sin of all kind of Christians, but Americans don't even recognize that as even a sin. We don't even, that's just being American. There's a lot of sins in the Bible that are under the radar of our culture. And that's one of them. And this is one of them too. When, um, when you are the elder brother and the prodigal comes home, what's the temptation? I do, he doesn't deserve to get the same thing that I get, right? We, we're assuming that it's not all of grace, right? What time we got? 7.30. Someone give me a 10-minute warning because I don't have my uh, clock up here. The workers, they come in half of the, they come in work a half day and they get a whole day's wages. Ah, this is a story all over the Bible. There's something very important about this, about having grace for people that you perceive to be worse sinners than you, right? When David, we're not going to preach through it because I didn't, I don't, how many weeks can you spend on the slaughter of the Amalekites? I didn't want to spend too many, but <laughs> it's only so practical. But, uh, but when he goes off and kills all the Amalekites, 200 of the men are too exhausted to keep going. They like, or they can't make it anymore and they collapse at the uh, at nearest stream and just camp out there. And David and the rest of the men beat all the Amalekites and come back. And David uh, spreads all the, uh, the spoils out to everyone. 
and the men are mad. Why should they get the spoils? They didn't come and fight. And he passed a law in Judah that says, whether you fight in the battle or you're back home in the support, everyone gets the spoils. That's a, that's a beautiful uh, aspect because it's all of grace. David, of course, is being very messianic there, passing laws, etc., etc. So it's all of grace. Whatever we get, it's all of grace. What a beautiful story. And so if somebody else seems like a bigger sinner to you and they seem like they're getting a bigger slice of grace, hey, be happy for them, right? If they have more favor, more gifts, longer life, more money, whatever it is, be happy for them. It's all grace. It's all grace. All right, so we have how many more minutes left? 20, okay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump to another story of mass circumcision. Since we're doing the circumcision thing, um, I think this is, uh, this is just another example of a city or a, a, a nation, a, a tribe, becoming Christians, all right? It's in Joshua chapter 5, yeah, if y'all want to turn there. <laughs> and I'm, this is the, I'm not going to do multiple circumcision <laughs> stories, just, this is the only one I'll, I'll, this is the last one for the night. But this is another passage that is just so intriguing to me, so intriguing. All right, so backstory. They pass through the Red Sea, okay? They're, they come out of the Exodus. They pass through the Red Sea, right? They enter into the wilderness. Man is coming from heaven. Water's coming from the rock, right? What does Paul say that Red Sea and that manna, I mean, that, that Red Sea and the manna and the water typologically represent? Sure, but more specific than that. Baptism, the Red Sea is baptism. Paul? Yeah, Peter says the flood is baptism. Paul says the Red Sea is baptism. Okay, so they all pass through the water and the cloud. So they're all baptized. And then they all eat of the bread, the, the body, of, and then they drink the water from the rock. He says, when they were a nation in Egypt, God saved them. They are baptized, and after the baptism, they're no longer called a nation, like, neutrally. They're called a congregation right? They're covenantal now, and they have the, the initiatory rite of baptism as they enter in. The whole nation, bang, all at once, the whole nation is baptized in the Red Sea. I mean, imagine the way we baptize now doing a whole nation. It would be difficult. God just does it one fell swoop, boom, through the, through the Red Sea, right? Um, through dry, dry ground, by the way. Um, and then once they get into the wilderness, then they take Lord's Supper together. But then what happens? They get their law. They get the law. He shows them how to live. He sets their course for the promised land. They, you know, they, they know their mission and purpose. But then what do they do? They grumble. What's still in their heart? They still got Egypt. Who else in the Bible is longing for that old world? Turns into a pillar of salt. Lot's wife, that's right. And the wicked and perverse generation of Jesus' day that refused to, per- to move forward into the new creation and remain in Jerusalem in the old ritual, and they're all destroyed. So this is a lot here. But they all go in, and then they uh, grumble, and they complain, and they want to go back to Egypt, and they build a golden calf, all right? And God calls them a wicked and perverse generation. Now, you think we're not told explicitly these things because the typology is not explained until Paul. And Paul doesn't dig into it that, that much. But at that point, we have to assume that they're not still taking Lord's Supper with the manna, right? 
They're also, we know for a fact, no longer circumcising their kids, as I'm going to show you in a second. And they're just wandering in the desert under judgment for 40 years. Remember that? That points forward to the 40 years of patience that Jesus had between his uh, ascension and his judgment on the wicked and perverse generation, the ultimate wicked and perverse generation in 70 AD, um, which this is a type of. Okay, so but now here we get to our text. Moses is passed on and Yeshua takes the lead of the people of God. Reconstituted Israel. A revival is going to break out. They're going to cross over the Jordan, leaving the wilderness and leaving Egypt and leaving all those judged wicked generation dead in the wilderness. Okay, it's a type of the gospel, the type of what happens in in the gospel. Okay, verse uh, one of Joshua five. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Right? The church militant. They're on the march. They're coming into the promised land. The captain of the Lord's army out in front. Yeshua leading. Y'all know what Jesus' name actually is, right? Yeshua. Yeah, it's Joshua. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. All right. Now, this is a second time, not because that's possible individually, obviously. It's this is going to be the second time the whole nation is circumcised. This is a covenantal renewal of the nation. All right. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. All right. Um, commentators say that it was about 1.4 million. It's a lot of circumcisions, right? Real quick, Joshua didn't do them all himself. Joshua is a type, and he represents whom? Jesus, who he doesn't circumcise the nations, but he baptizes the nations through his representatives, ordained ministers in particular. And um, that's, that is the picture here. Why the flint knives and not... Um, I don't know, bronze, I'm not sure. So, but, because why? Well, but they, they had real weapons too. They had like, they had metal and stuff. So I don't know, maybe God just doesn't want them getting fancy with it. All right, like, you know, when he said build an altar, he said, don't cut, don't mess with those stones. Just pick the stones by the field and stack them up, right? Don't, wait, what? KJV says sharp knives, well. Oh, KJV, all right, I don't know. <laughs> Whether they were sharp or dull. They had to have been sharp. They had to be somewhat sharp. All right, let's move on. We're a lot of circumcisions here. <laughs> All right. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Verse 4. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way of the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now what the heck is happening? They built a golden calf. They said, behold, the God that brought us here. We want to go back to Egypt. They tried to kill Moses. They're apostate. They're the wicked and perverse generation. So they didn't circumcise their kids. They didn't believe the covenants, right? They didn't care. They didn't care. It, it goes to show you this town, Shechem, they want to be circumcised. They, they, that's, uh, that's the Genesis way of saying they're saved. They want to be in. They're not apostate. They're, they re- forgive them, right? So here, verse 6 For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation. This is national. This is corporate, covenantal, 
judgment and covenantal revival of a nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. You don't go to heaven if you're an apostate. You don't inherit the earth if you're an apostate. You don't get resurrected from the dead. None of those. You don't get any of the promises. So it was their children whom he, who's the he there in verse 7? I don't know. Are y'all following? I I know I'm reading fast, but it's definitely God. So it was their children whom God raised up in their place. So this is not just a ritual. This is a genuine revival of a whole nation. You see what I'm, a whole generation that Joshua circumcised, of course, through the Levites as his representatives. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way in the wilderness. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover. See that? They're, they're back in. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a revival. It's a beautiful revival. On the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains of Jericho, in the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Isn't that something? How much time do we have? Okay, good. All right. 1.4 million people circumcised, joining the church. All right. Y'all believe that's possible? Just like that. All right. A nation being converted. Not just one individual at a time, but a whole nation. All right. Now, were they Israel, the nation, before they were circumcised? Were they responsible to be under the law? Right. Were they, you know, um, children of Abraham biologically yeah, and his uh, household members? Right. But what they didn't have until they were circumcised, they didn't have access. The high priest was not representing them. Right. They were apostate. Right. So this is not 1.4 million people joining the political nation of Israel. They were already in that. This is 1.4 million people joining the church. There was always a separation of church and state in the Old Testament. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I promise you, there's always a separation of church and state. Moses didn't do what Aaron did, and Aaron didn't do what Moses did. All right. So they're being admitted into the church. They're taking the Passover meal. <clears throat> All right. And, uh, and that's a pretty big entrance into, into the church. <clears throat> Could this be many people be converted and welcomed into the church today? Yes. And I would submit to you that it is happening all over the world. Um, And if you want to read about that, you can read um, the quite a few books by um, the missiologist named Donald McGavran. And he chronicles tribes of people coming to to faith and all being baptized. Um, You know the stories in the Middle Ages where entire Viking tribes are baptized or an entire island under the ministry of Patrick becomes Christian. We don't have that in our worldview anymore. It's because our worldview, like I've said, is messed up. It's messed, something's not, it's not totally messed up, but we're still, it's, it, there's, we got some stuff in there that is keeping us from seeing some things, all right? <clears throat> now, um, <clears throat> Acts 3.25, uh, listen, listen carefully to this. This is why I believe we should pray for and hope for 
and definitely believe in the possibility that God would raise up a generation, save a whole nation. What's the Great Commission? Baptize individuals out of every nation. That's not what it says. Baptize the nations. Man, that's a big ticket. How are we going to baptize a whole nation, right? Well, Acts 3.25 promises it, at least partly. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. Does anyone know who's speaking in Acts 3? Peter, to the, uh, to the uh, crowds there. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So there's our gospel promise. All right. Repeated at Pentecost. What is the gospel promise? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that probably means tribes or clans. Our families are so deconstructed that, you know, all we can think of is a nuclear family, if we're even thinking of that. But this is all the tribes and clans of the earth. Listen to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's a big promise. Hard to believe, but it's a promise. And the scripture, Galatians 3, 9, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So can God baptize a nation? He said he would, didn't he? Didn't he? He definitely said that. He definitely did. All right? And, we, and not after they die and, and go to heaven. Nations. Nations, like real nations. All right? How much time we got? Ten minutes. Thanks, Kevin. Now, do we have any examples of nations, masses of people becoming Christian, joining the church in the Bible? We just we just did a couple. Yeah, we just did a couple. But there's some more. There's Nineveh converted in one day. The whole and it even says in the babies, too. You can read the read the story. The whole whole lot of them enter into the church because covenantal membership in the church has always been for households, um, not just. Uh, individuals all right they all go in Jonah's mad about it um can you think of any other examples there's some there's some obscure ones the the Samaritans all come in bang right there that's right the whole Samaritan there's like a massive revival thousands of people right and they're baptized they're baptizing the nations this is the gospel promise now and and I don't have time to show you but baptism is the same symbolism as circumcision. Out with the old, in with the new. It's a status change. It's a cleansing. It's a washing. It's an initiatory rite of entering into the covenant people. Right? It's the same, the same parallels here. <coughs> what about uh, the Gibeonites in Joshua 9? That's an obscure story, but the Gibeonite nation. Um, in Esther 8.17, listen to this. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reach, that's a long, huge global empire. There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Right? Isn't that something? Mass revivals. That could happen. Right? <clears throat> so, um, if a nation can be converted, can a nation be excommunicated? Yeah. In the Bible, some are. Definitely. Well, in, in the Israel, Israel in the wilderness <laughs> and uh, Israel in 70 A.D. Um, and there's others. Right. 
Um, is America excommunicated? I, I, you know, I don't know. We sure are behaving like it, right? Our generation is becoming more and more and more and more pagan, right? Um, <clears throat> now, if a parent has no faith in the gospel, like the ones in the wilderness, then what is not going to happen to the children? They're not going to be in the covenant promises either, and they're not going to receive the sign of the covenant promise. They're not going to. Um, and that's what happened. And uh, it wasn't because they just didn't do it. It's because the Levites didn't do it. They were excommunicated. They're build- you can't build a golden calf and then go over to the Levite and want to and get your baby circumcised. That's why we don't baptize random strangers from off the street. They don't just walk in and be like, hey, I'd like to get my kid baptized or I'd like to be baptized. Well, no, we have to know if they're a Christian or not. You know what I'm saying? If they're an adult and they can speak for themselves, then you have to, do they have a credible profession? We don't just baptize strange, random people that are not Christians. And if they're a baby, their, their status of, their covenantal status comes from their, their family's faith. All right? So any, anything else, any other uh, questions? I got a few just random points here, but they can wait. Um, isn't that interesting? I think this is an interesting story. Kevin's not so sure. You know. <laughs> right, just, you know, warms your heart. I love it. Um, all right, well, just a few things. This will help you. This will help you. Just practical stuff. Usually the faith is handed down generation to generation. That's the normative pattern, although that is broken sometimes by parents' apostasy, right? This is a good example of it. Another thing, Passover comes after circumcision, and, and it's also true, Lord's Supper comes after baptism, right? And so if you're not baptized, you don't take Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is supposed to come after baptism. Um, there are uh, tests of faith in this particular thing before these adults are circumcised. And you can read that in the last chapters of Deuteronomy. Um, this whole uh, town in Shechem and all the, the 1.4 million people in Israel it's, they don't just decide we're going to circumcise. God raises them up, and there's tests of faith. Their profession is credible. It's a genuine revival. They have a credible profession before they are then circumcised. And that's exactly how we do baptism today as well. Um, <clears throat> and uh, another thing is we can't know the heart. Just because someone is baptized or circumcised doesn't mean that they're necessarily um, genuine. We can't know the heart, can we? All we take is the profession. Of course, if you're willing to be circumcised, that's a pretty good sign you're genuine. Um, much more than when you get a T-shirt <laughs> and a sucker um, at a church service for baptism. So, um, Another thing is the circumcisions are to be done under the authority of the Levites. Circumcision or baptism is not a family thing. Like You can't just do that in your pool, in your backyard <laughs> with, your, with your family. The keys of the the kingdom and the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper, belong to Christ's representatives in the church. And so it's a church ordinance. Um, and uh, let's see. And it's also the circumcisions, as awkward as it sounds, I think it's all men, but they're done publicly. Uh, it's not a, a thing you do by yourself in your kitchen, right? It's not, a, it's not like a little private baptism, I mean, or Lord's Supper. These are church sacraments. They're public. They're all supposed to be public um, and, uh, and they're not to be done in secret, right, by yourself if you're feeling guilty or anything like that, all right? So that's just some random other things that I thought. How many more minutes do we have, Tim?